John chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 29. Follow along if you would, please. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thankful this morning for God's word. Well, the title that I'd like to pull from this passage 
is just that exclamation that you hear from Mary and from the apostles. I have seen the Lord. What a difference such a statement makes, right? I mean, that changes absolutely everything on every level of Mary's life, of the apostles' life. I have seen the Lord. We talked last week about his crucifixion, his death, and how John is so certain and clear, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was dead. He did not simply pass out after such an execution. He didn't switch out with somebody else at the last moment. He didn't avoid death, though he very well had the right to avoid it. Yet he had no right to avoid the obedience of his Father's command. And so Jesus died. It is finished, being his final cry. The spear piercing his side. The holes in his hands because of the nails on the cross. The body laid in the tomb of a rich man to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. All of these things say, case closed, Jesus has died. And that if you remember, the timing of his death is profound. What was going on during Jesus' execution? What holiday? Passover. The Jewish holiday of the year. The most important holiday of the year. And if you remember, when John points out that when the soldiers came to break the legs of the other criminals, and they intended to break Jesus' legs as well, to end his suffering and to end his life, they didn't break his legs. And John points out, not one of his bones will be broken. And that's significant when we read the prophets, but it's significant when we read the law too. Because the Passover lamb could have no broken bones, could have no blemishes whatsoever. And so John points out to us that on the night that the Passover lamb would have been killed for the celebration of Passover, the true Passover lamb was slaughtered and absorbed the wrath of God for you on the cross and could rightly say, it is finished. Amazingly, it is finished and yet it is not over. That is the paradox of the resurrection. If you remember last week, we played around with a fun word that J.R.R. Tolkien made up. Do you remember that word? Eucatastrophe. Somebody remembered it. Do you remember what eucatastrophe is? It is the opposite of a catastrophe. The catastrophe is the big defining event that seemingly ruins everything. A eucatastrophe is what comes in with similar drama and impact, but makes everything right again. And so we talked about how simultaneously the cross is a catastrophe as the sin of mankind is made so abundantly clear for the world to see. And the Son of God, the perfect innocent Lamb of God, is slaughtered in the place of criminals. What a catastrophe. And yet at the same time, it is a eucatastrophe. Because it is good. That's why we call it what Friday? Good Friday, right? He brings about good through it, and yet there is another catastrophe to come. And it is as shocking as the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet it shouldn't have been, should it? Do you, did you hear what John notes in verse 9? After verse 8, when the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, did you know that Jesus loved John? He really wants you to know that. It's the most important thing about him. In fact, we probably should follow suit, right? We should probably say, hi, I'm Nick. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. 
It's a great way to greet people, right? It's the truest thing about us. Anyhow, as he points that out in his story, we come to verse 9, as he goes into the tomb, it says, For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They had not understood the scripture. They had not understood what they heard. And so they needed to see. I have seen the Lord. What a wonderful victory Christ has won at the cross. Winning our freedom. Breaking the yoke of sin. Let's go through this passage and consider a couple of things. First of all, in verses 1 through 9, we see Mary and the apostles meet at the tomb. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I remember in another gospel that there were other women that went with Mary. And even in our Jesus Storybook time, we saw there were other women, right? You might come to John and say, oh, John's got something wrong here. He only mentions Mary, right? Well, if you go home, let's say you go home and your your spouse or someone is is home and they ask, oh, well, who was at church today? You might say, oh, um, Bree was at church today and we talked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's nice. The conversation goes on and you never end up listing everyone else who was at church today. Have you lied? Well, certainly not. Thank you. That's right. You've spoken the truth, right? You did talk to Bree today at church. There were other people there, too. That's just simply what John's doing. He's pointing out Mary Magdalene because there's something unique about Mary's experience here. Yes, there were other women there at the tomb. Yes, there were other angels at the tomb. But John chooses to bring about certain details to bring about a different focus, as do the other gospel writers as well. So Mary and the apostles meet at the tomb in the first nine verses of our passage. It should be something we point out that this happened on Sunday. I mean, this, this verse right here is part of why we are worshiping on this day today. Right? The early church, very, very early on. You can see this throughout church history. Uh, if you study church history, that is very, very early on, the church established that Sunday, the first day of the week, would be the day that they gather to worship because of this singular event. I mean, that is massive, people, because the Sabbath was what day? Saturday, the day before that. And if you remember anything about the Gospel of John, you can remember the times that Jesus was accused of breaking Sabbath, right? You don't mess around with the Sabbath at all. And yet the church messed around with the Sabbath in one sense, right? Now, especially those early Jews would have still practiced Sabbath. They would have been living the Jewish lifestyle the same way that they ever did. But they also, very early on, set apart Sunday to be the day that they would worship. Well, on Sunday, Mary and the other women come to the tomb before the sun comes up. And seeing an empty tomb was not an immediate encouragement. It was a disaster. It was another catastrophe. How could this be? Jesus gruesomely murdered the couple days before. We had to endure all of that. And now as we come to try to honor the body of Jesus, the body's gone. It was a very serious thing to steal a body from a tomb. In fact, the Roman Empire put the death penalty on anyone who would steal a body from a tomb. It was very, very serious. They don't know what's going on. They think there must be some terrible scheme about this. Well, Mary, of course, then goes back to the disciples and says, the tomb's empty, what are we supposed to do? Peter and John run with her back to the tomb. And again, John gives us excessive details, right? John, the, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was faster than Peter, but Peter went in first, all this kind of stuff. You might think it, it was a little silly, John, we don't really care who got there first. It's 
Very great that you're quicker than Peter, who might have been 10, 15 years older than you. That's understandable. But I would encourage you not to think of it in a way of John saying, I really like to get a good brag in here and let everybody know how quick I am. And rather, think about how you would write this story. Think about how you would love to just include certain details. Because when John says, I ran as fast as I could, even faster than Peter, or Peter's the one who's later on going to get out of the boat in the middle of the lake when they're very close to the shore. You know, he's going to get out and swim the rest of the way when he sees Jesus, too. John is just expressing the excitement and the awe and the wonder and the, the confusion and all the catastrophe and eucatastrophe all mixed in together. He's sharing that with us in these verses. Excessive details, yes, but they are helpful. They are meaningful. This is the defining moment of John's life. I mean, again, just as he calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, if you asked him what was the most life-changing moment you've ever experienced, it had to be running to that tomb, right? And seeing, wow, the women were right. The tomb is empty. And then in verse 8, I love this. In verse 8 and 9, there's almost like a, a weird tension. You might see a contradiction, but look at it again, if you will. The other disciple who reached the tomb first, by the way, he reached the tomb first. Did you know that? Don't ever forget, when you see John in heaven, make sure to give him a high five and say, good job reaching that tomb first, right? He went in, and he saw and believed. Now, this is really interesting, because the belief doesn't really kick in for the rest of the disciples yet, but John points out that when he went into the tomb and saw it empty, he believed at that point. But then there's almost a contrasting phrase here in verse 9. For... As yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, a simple explanation of this could simply be that John in that moment had a light bulb moment where he thought, oh my goodness, Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's what's going on here. Jesus is alive. He might have been thinking that. And this for, as yet, might be referring to before this, that time between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But I would also offer another option in this, ex in this interpretation as well. I think that John is kind of stunned silent here. Because if you notice, God bless you, if you notice, he doesn't actually say anything in this whole chapter. Right? He doesn't stop and say, hold up, Peter and Mary, think about this. Remember Psalm 16. Remember everything the prophets have said. Remember what Jesus told us. He doesn't stop and explain all of that. I think he's a little stunned silent in awe of what he thinks could have actually happened. In verses 10 to 18, then we have this beautiful story of Mary seeing Jesus, weeping at the tomb, and the angels appear. And in John's account here, he only brings out that one question from the angel, Why are you weeping? It's the same kind of feeling as, why are you here? This is a tomb. This, is to, this tomb is for dead people. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. But Mary is confused, and she's doubting, and, and how can he be alive? I don't see his body. And if he is alive, where is he? And all sorts of questions flooding her mind. So she stays behind as though frozen by her doubt and her wonder. The angels bring just that soft rebuke. There's not supposed to be weeping when there's joy to be had. And then when Jesus appears, I love this consideration that she's so lost in her wonder and doubt that she can't recognize him. Now, there's, there's a theological perspective that, that may or may not be true, that Jesus' appearance had altered some bit 
Uh, you could see in the end of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus follows the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and his identity was hidden from them in some way. There, there is a possibility that he might have looked slightly different than he did when they knew him before the cross. But in this moment, whether it be that or just simply Mary's um, tear-soaked eyes that can't even see through all the tears to make out who she's talking to, the gardener comes in and asks, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? I think you're looking for the wrong person. There's nobody here. Mary, not believing, not, not believing because she can't see at this point, her response comes at that, if you heard it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, no one else said her name the, quite the way Jesus did. That that was the turning point for her. And this is where, again, I want to point you to our title and our consideration for this morning. That Christ is alive. That we are called to believe, to rejoice, and to testify to that. Seeing isn't a requirement in that. Mary's faith awakened upon hearing her name from Jesus' mouth. And then she turned and saw him. Then the testimony came. I have seen the Lord. She calls him Rabboni, which means my teacher, and becomes the first one to announce the good news. I have seen the Lord. In 19 through 23, Jesus appears and commissions the apostle. My favorite part of this section is how Jesus shows up in the middle of this locked room, in the midst of them. I mean, you kind of imagine him walking through the door and everybody turning around and going, there's Jesus. But I think the way John says this, it almost makes it sound like they're all sitting around the table, and as they're looking around at each other, the, the ten now, because Thomas isn't with them, Judas has died, the ten of them looking around at each other's faces going, what do you make of this? What do you think? Do you believe the women? And Jesus kind of just appears in the middle of them and goes, peace to you. <laughs> He's just there. Right? He showed up among them. And I love that Jesus has to say, peace be with you twice. Because in the middle of that, John says, look at verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Don't let that glad just go, huh, oh, nice, there's Jesus. All right, cool. All is well. I'm good. I just can't imagine the way that we've seen the disciples described in the Gospels, that they calmly accept the resurrection of Jesus. I think the reason Jesus says, peace be with you yet again, is because he's kicking them all off of him, trying to get away from all their hugs and questions and saying, hey, I have something to say here, right? Relax for a moment. Their gladness was an overflowing joy. Peace to you. And he commissions them. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And something very interesting happens. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this is another point where we need to kind of think biblical, theological here a little bit. What is happening when he says, receive the Holy Spirit? Because we see in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the evidence by speaking in tongues and the, the great growth of the church. 3,000 people were added in that day. The miracles, the signs and wonders beginning then. But if we follow the rest of the book of John, we see the disciples haven't had that big indwelling Holy Spirit moment. Now, what I don't think here is that the Spirit comes in two waves. Uh, there's, there's one idea that says, well, the Holy Spirit was received by the disciples for salvation. They're made new, but they didn't get the power yet. Okay, and that came in Acts chapter 2. That's one interpretation. But D.A. Carson, I think, has a better idea of understanding the receiving the Holy Spirit here. He compares it to the way Jesus promised during the, um, sorry, the 
washing of the disciples' feet, when he explains to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, was he talking about literally washing his feet? No, we get that, right? He's talking about being washed by the blood of Jesus, symbolically, being made pure and, and purified. And, and in that way, as Jesus is giving a symbolic gesture by washing the disciples' feet, but then truly washing them at the cross, so here, when he speaks and breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, he's making a promise that is going to come later. You can feel free to totally disagree with me on that interpretation. That's completely fine. But he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you withhold forgiveness from any, I'm sorry, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, certainly this can't mean that the disciples are now given the authority to forgive and not forgive sins. That's God's job alone, right? What Jesus is referring to is just as he was sent by the Father to proclaim the good news, so they are sent to proclaim the good news. And what Jesus is describing is just the effects of the good news. That those who believe can have assurance that their sins are forgiven. That those who disbelieve can know that until they believe, their sins are not dealt with. This is the commissioning, the effects of the gospel. When Jesus finally appears to Thomas, it happens eight days later. See, Thomas had eight days to listen to the disciples' testimony, I have seen the Lord. Eight days to sit around his nine closest friends and wonder, why does everybody else seem to get something that I don't? And yet, in his hard heart, he makes some very serious conditions to believing that Jesus is risen. Jesus then comes and basically throws those conditions out the window. John doesn't leave us room to think that Thomas said, all right, let me see the hands and let me see the hole in the side, and then, okay, it's you, Jesus. And he falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. And then we get again Jesus' lesson from this passage. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Church, if you believe that Christ is risen today, Jesus in one sense is saying here that there is a peculiar blessing because you have believed. But in a deeper sense, it is rather an idea of being accepted by God. Those who are accepted by God, whose sins are forgiven, are those who say, I don't need to see it to believe it. I know it's true. The resurrection of Christ calls us to respond in simple faith, just like that. To respond in joy and to an obedience to a commission. Did you notice that Mary was given, acted out that commission upon seeing Christ? Her testimony was generated from that experience, from that moment. From that confirmation, Jesus is alive, and she couldn't but testify about it. And that's what's so fascinating for us, because when we consider sharing a testimony about Christ, we think of so many conditions, don't we? And, and we might look at this kind of passage and say, boy, whereas it's hard for me to share the gospel with somebody until I feel brave enough, or I feel comfortable enough, or I feel smart enough, or I feel this way enough, I would have loved to be like Mary, or Thomas even, I would have loved to have seen the Lord. I think Jesus' lesson to us this morning in this passage is to say, hey, seeing me isn't necessarily going to make you believe. That's not necessarily the missing ingredient in your spiritual life. But for us, our conflict with this passage is that oftentimes seeing seems better than simply believing. I mean, my goodness, if you had the choice on this Sunday morning to either hear from me again or have Jesus himself come up, 
with no paper Bible or anything and just preach to you. Don't tell me what you would pick to hurt my feelings. I'd be so disappointed. Just kidding. We would all say, yes, Jesus, you go ahead. You appear. You give us all a vision of yourself. That's what we need more than anything else. It's not true. Because if it was what we needed more than anything else, to see Jesus in person, would he withhold that from you? Would he say, boy, I know that if I showed up, that would just fix all their problems, but I'm going to let this silly dude try to help them out every week from God's word and see if that works, and, you know, just for fun. Uh, No, it's not. I'm not trying to say that what we have is better than the alternative that I gave, but according to God's plan, this is what he's ordained. That God's people gather around God's word. And that the purpose of worship be found not in seeing, but in hearing. Blessed are those who have believed and yet haven't seen. Well, how are they going to believe, church? How are we going to believe? By hearing the word of God and believing it. If you look backwards to verse 10, you see that after the apostles, uh, Peter and John, and, well, not Mary, Mary stayed at the tomb, but after they had seen the empty tomb, they didn't know what to do. What's the next step? I mean, Jesus left already. He's been gone. We are kind of clueless. We just hang out and behind locked doors and wonder what's going to happen next. So they went back to their homes. Do you wonder what thoughts dominated their minds? What struggle they were facing as to whether they should believe what they have seen or, more importantly, what they haven't seen, right? Mary couldn't see where Jesus' body was laid, and so she was frozen in time in that moment. I mean, I get the impression from John's writing that if Jesus didn't show up and talk to Mary, she might have stayed there forever. I mean, just clueless as to what to do next. Her whole life was built around Christ. Thomas couldn't see how Jesus could be alive either, and so he put conditions on it. Unless I see the holes in his hands and put my hands there, unless I feel the hole in his side. Do you notice what he says after that? Look again at Thomas's words. They're over here in verse uh, 25. Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe He's not just saying, it's going to be really difficult for me to believe what you guys are saying unless I have some proof. He's not saying, I don't know here. He's saying, I will never believe. And so what do we nickname Thomas? What terrible nickname do we give this poor man? Doubting Thomas. You you need to stop calling him that. That's just unkind, isn't it? Right? I mean, he gets two mentions in the Gospel of John, and one of them gives him this horrible nickname for the rest of time. Doubting Thomas. The reason that we shouldn't call him Doubting Thomas is because he is not doubting any less than the rest of the disciples are doubting before they saw Christ. He's not doubting any less than you've doubted the resurrection of Christ. He is just the one that we get the words written that he was the one who spoke up for the rest of us. Unless I see him, I will never believe. The truth is is that like Thomas, we put conditions on our faith as well. Whether we try to bargain with God and say, Lord, I will do that thing that I know you want me to do after you fix this problem that's been bugging me for so many weeks. I'm tired of my kids sniffling all night long. Or maybe something more serious in your life. 
We take those things and, and it's so easy for us to turn them into conditions and to turn them into bargaining chips. Lord, okay, I get it. If you're in charge, you're allowing this thing to happen in my life. If you fix it, then I'll finally do that thing that you're asking me to do. I'll finally get more serious about following Christ. Whatever the conditions might be. This is not how the Lord relates to his people. When he appears to Thomas, he gives grace to Thomas, doesn't he? He says, look, you see and believe, but you're missing out in one sense on what people in 2022, sitting at Cross Point Community Church or anywhere else that the gospel is being preached, you're missing out on a blessing that all the rest of us get if we believe in Christ without seeing. Yeah, amen. I'd like you to compare this to Martha in John chapter 11 after Lazarus' death. There's a great line Martha has. Again, another character that gets a bad rap, right? Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. She was worried about many things, but she also loved Jesus. And in fact, in John chapter 11, if you remember, Martha does a little bit better job walking by faith than her sister. When Jesus shows up after Lazarus has died, she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says... Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. I'm realizing the struggle. Sorry, the struggle's on the side of the stage. I'm realizing the struggle. If you would have been here, you could have fixed this. You could have stopped this. Yet, there's a deeper and more real truth that even though I haven't seen it, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so I can trust Christ. Let that be the marker for Martha in your mind. Because the disciples, those brave men that Jesus sent out to preach the gospel, that all scattered on the night of his crucifixion, are sitting behind the locked doors, wondering what's going to happen next. See, just like Thomas, the rest of them are putting conditions on their faith too. We want to be faithful to Christ, but we're locking the doors. We know why Jesus was arrested, and they're going to be coming for us too, aren't they? So without, hopefully without taking a sort of corny symbolic reference here, I would ask you this morning, what locked doors exist in your heart? What are the conditions that you've put on Jesus for your continued obedience? And those conditions for your continued obedience also become the excuse for your lack of obedience, right? When you're faced with your sin and you recognize how you have walked further from Christ, perhaps on a certain day than another day, maybe. It is those conditions that turn into excuses. Yeah, but Lord, life's been real hard right now. See, what Jesus is calling us to is not to endure something so well and so impressively that we could present it to God as an acceptable sacrifice, but rather that we would simply trust in what we have heard that we would believe without having to, be, having to see. That we would take those conditions like, I can't see how the resurrection impacts my life today. Show me that. I can't see how God can expect me to rejoice when I can't experience the resurrected Christ the way the apostles did. When I can't see how the resurrection calls me to the mission of Christ and why that's even important. Rather, the alternative that God calls us to is not to see these things and believe, but to believe them through hearing. And through humility, though we might express a need to, Lord, I want to see some evidence of your work in my life. We can do that in humility. But when that seeking comes,
contradicts the way Jesus has set for us to believe, it turns into sin so quickly. When he says, I want you to believe my word, I want you to believe that I am alive today, and I want you to believe it because I've said it. And we say, yeah, but Lord, if you could do something else to prove that to me, then I'll believe. What more does the Son of God need to do once he's given his life for the sake of his people? John believed in verse 8, but he couldn't yet respond because Scripture, the Word of God itself, is what unlocks our faith, what moves us forward. So let's look at Thomas' story again. If you were up here earlier and you'd like to come back up to the front, junior worship kids, we'll look at the Jesus book again. One more time, we'll just read part of Thomas' story. Because again, Sally Lloyd-Jones does a great job, I think, of helping us consider the change that happened in the minds and hearts of the disciples. Do you want to come up for a second? We'll read this together. Thank you. See the picture? This is one of my favorite pictures in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Why do you think? Why is this one of my favorites? Yeah, Gideon's already laughing. Why, Gideon? Who? Yes, he's hiding under the table. You see Kai? (laughs) He's hiding under the table. Yeah, that's right. He's scared. He thought for sure that Jesus had died, but now he's alive, huh? He doesn't know what to do. Let's read the story. Jesus' friends were afraid, so they were hiding in an upstairs room with the door bolted shut. That didn't stop Jesus. He just walked straight through the wall. It's a ghost, Thomas screamed and hid under the table. But it wasn't a ghost. I'm hungry, Jesus said. What's for lunch? Peter gave him a fish. They all hung back and watched him eat. This can't be, they were telling themselves. It's impossible. It's not happening. But it was right in front of them. Jesus was alive. Delicious. Jesus wiped his mouth with the back of his hand and grinned. Can a ghost do that? He winked. Then they all laughed. I'm really here, Jesus said, and he really was. Peter's heart leaped with joy, and he fell into Jesus' arms, hugging and kissing him. The others followed. They felt their hearts would burst from the happiness. The friends ate together and chatted happily, and every now and then, they'd just gaze at Jesus and have to touch him to be sure they weren't dreaming. Jesus had a real body, but this body was better. It had come through death and couldn't get sick or be killed again. This body would live forever. Jesus had come back with a brand new body. Not only were sad things coming untrue, the friends realized they were becoming new again. Was God going to make everything new? Jesus said, I am the Savior and the Rescuer of the world. And they knew, because he couldn't stay dead, because Jesus had come alive again, that somehow everything was going to be all right. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus sat with the disciples. And what happened for the disciples in this moment was they realized God's word was true. God promised that Jesus would rise again from the dead, and he did. And it wasn't just the sitting and eating a meal with Jesus that taught them that. It was their realization in their hearts that God had spoken the truth and that they could trust him. All right, I know that that didn't seem as long as I thought it was going to be, but can you guys head back to your seats now? Thank you. Maybe if nothing else, it was a good excuse to stretch your legs in the middle of the sermon. Christ's resurrection reveals the permanent presence of the Savior with you. You may not see him, but you can know that he is present with you. 
when you hear his word, when you walk by his spirit. Jesus is present with us because of the resurrection. And he shows that by walking through walls. You might think that was just like a funny parlor trick. Why did Jesus do that? What's the big deal? Does that not show us that there's nothing that can separate us from Christ now? That though how we would love to have Jesus come and sit in the pink chair next to us and and be with us and hear his voice audibly and see his face and touch him on the face and just know, yeah, you're real and you're here. Yet he says it is better for me, for you rather, that I be as this. Be just as he's appeared to the disciples. Christ's resurrection reveals permanent presence. He is never away from us now. When he was on the earth for those three years of ministry, you could only be with Jesus if you could be where he was. Now Jesus can be with you wherever you are. That is from God's word. That is his promise. When he says earlier on in the Gospel of John, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That promise is made perfect and true because he will never leave us. There will never be a time that we're not with us. It's necessary for us to draw near to him in true humility, just as Thomas needed to learn. But initially, it is Christ who breaks through our stony hearts, who walks through those locked doors. He doesn't meet our conditions and say, okay, well, what do I need to do for Nick here? He said he'd love to have lunch with me someday and do all these things. I'll check off Nick's list, and then he'll believe. No, notice what he does here. He doesn't say, ooh, I have the magic key to unlock the door, and now I can be in the room with you. He walks through the door. The door means nothing. When God's word affects your heart and produces faith, it's not because you go, wow, God, thanks for finally adhering to my conditions. Rather, we've adhered to his I love what John Wesley says about his conversion. While he was hearing um, actually something from Martin Luther's work in the book of Romans, he said, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's from possibly one of the most effective and dynamic preachers in American history. He said, upon hearing the good news, his heart was warmed and changed. If John Wesley need only hear the word of God and so impact the world around him with the testimony of Christ's resurrection, what is it that you need, church? What is it that I need? What is it that we need that we think God hasn't provided for us? Jesus' presence with us gives us the assurance that our sins are forgiven, that his word is trustworthy, and that he hasn't left us in our sin or in our sorrow or in our shame. One more quote this morning. Augustus Toplady, who wrote um, Rock of Ages, that great hymn that we sing, he said that a feeble faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. If your faith feels feeble... If you feel that those conditions that perhaps you've placed upon God and realize you've actually just placed them upon yourself and you've actually limited your ability to walk in obedience by those conditions, let your feeble faith lay hold of a strong Christ. True faith in Christ isn't without doubt, but it takes that doubt to Jesus in prayer and it finds assurance by the means of his presence through his spirit and through his word. So what do we do? 
We need to enjoy the peace of simple faith and humble obedience in the resurrection. The disciples in verse 10 went to their homes and contemplated and thought and wondered. I wonder if we might do that this Sunday morning. That we might go out from this place and think on the resurrection. And how does the resurrection impact the rest of your lovely, beautiful Sunday afternoon? I mean, this is my favorite kind of weather because it wasn't hard to get to church. The snow's just falling. I mean, this is just such a great setting to just stop and be in awe on the resurrection of Jesus. And to know that he has a promise of his presence. He breathed on the disciples and told them, receive the Holy Spirit. To wait on that promise of the power that was going to come. To wait in an expectation that Christ would not leave them as orphans, but would bring them to himself. So for this Sunday, then, I have three um, keys to responding by simple faith to the resurrection. Responding by simple faith and not by sight. So first of all, if you can see it up there, I think we have a slide for it. Is that slide ready, Brian? Maybe. There it is. Thank you so much. Enjoy the peace of the resurrection. Church, start with that. Don't start with, okay, what do I need to do? All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. Stop. Wait. Listen. Rest. And enjoy what Christ has done on your behalf. Jesus comes to the disciples with a message through Mary in the first place as he tells Mary, I'm, ascended to, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That is to say that Jesus is saying to Mary in that moment, I don't have my work done just yet. Don't cling to me physically right now because I'm going to be everywhere before you know it. That is the promise that we have. That is the peace that we have day to day. That sin, even though it disrupts our enjoyment of this peace, sin is done away with at the cross. We can put our simple faith in that today. Secondly, have an attitude of humble obedience. Consider Mary. What did he ask Mary to do? Go and tell them that I'm alive. And she did it. What else could she do? Don't you notice that Jesus called her to do the natural thing? He didn't say, now that this amazing thing happened, here's the intricate, amazing thing I'm going to ask you to do in response to make it really special. He just simply says, go do what makes the most sense to do right now, which is to go and tell. Have an attitude of humble obedience, just as Jesus was sent by the Father. What was Jesus' goal in being sent by the Father? But to walk in obedience, so it is for us. The Son's obedience accomplished the mission, and ours is to walk in obedience to it. Remember, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, but it wasn't over yet. That's where we live. you got to live in that weird tension, church. It is finished. The victory's won at the cross, but it's not over yet. we still got a little bit of time. We're still here for that vapor of life that we experience on this earth. And we should do it with an expe- expectations of glory. Lastly, wait on the Spirit's empowerment and leading. This is taken directly from the last thing that the disciples pretty much had in this notion of the Holy Spirit and receiving him, receiving his presence, receiving his power. It was to come. Now, you have the Spirit here now and today. What you don't need to do is wait on your own power and your own activation of that Spirit. Follow the Spirit. That doesn't mean conjure up and and read your Bible and make sure you don't sin for 24 hours and then the Spirit's going to do something amazing. No. As you just peacefully enjoy the victory of Christ and the peace of the resurrection, trust in the Spirit to work in the way that He has chosen to work. 
according to his word. One day then, our faith will be turned to sight. It's going to be a glorious day because Christ himself is our living hope. He's not dead. He is alive. And we should respond accordingly. That is to say that if you believe this morning that Jesus is alive, respond in the most natural way. That is, believe, rejoice, and tell everyone. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for the good news that we have of the cross. And the second good news, the second you catastrophe of the resurrection. That from the human perspective, the thought that all was lost at the cross... So likewise, the resurrection proves us that all has been gained. May we walk in accordance to the truth of the resurrection this day and all of our days until we also are resurrected with you. We thank you for the great hope that we have and ask now that you would help us to sing in according to it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.